Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, there's a kind of mistake we all make in in our modern electrified homes, and this is microwave mistakes. (laughs) What's the worst microwave mistake you've ever made? Oh, um, I don't know about the the worst. Uh, I mean, generally, it just involves making a mess, like splat- splattering something, not covering something uh, appropriately. So you have to not only remove your food from the microwave, but then scrub it out. I remember there was one day not too long ago, I think it might have been like on New Year's this year or something, that within the same day, I think I tried to microwave butter to melt it, and mm-hmm. it exploded in the microwave. But then I also tried to microwave a soft-boiled egg to heat it up, Ooh. and it exploded. Uh, so, I don't know. There's a lot of exploding in the microwave. But there's another kind of microwave mistake where we use this radio range of ultra-modern convenience uh, to to maybe maybe do a little less uh, troublesome damage than, uh, than blowing up an egg, but at least causing frustration when you warp lids of containers in the microwave. Have oh, you ever yes. done this? Yes, yeah. definitely. Uh, so, you know, you want to heat up some food. Maybe you just want to sterilize a bowl full of mud or something. So you put it in a glass bowl with a tight-fitting lid or a uh, you know, tight-fitting plastic, tight-fitting rubber lid. Uh, you know, you maybe shouldn't do this, but you forget, but you cover it up with something that fits tight and you microwave it and it gets piping hot and you leave it standing in the microwave for a minute. And then when you check it, uh, the lid or the plastic wrap or whatever you've used to cover it has been sucked down into a concave depression over the food. It has turned your, you know, if it's a permanent lid, it has warped it maybe or you've caused trouble. And the way we normally think about these kind of things is that when something like this happens, the the lid or the plastic was sucked down. But think about why is that happening? What's actually happening there? What's the attractive force pulling the lid of the container down into the food? Obviously, it's not gravity, right? The food isn't like a star pulling things (laughs) into its orbit. And it's not electromagnetism. The food isn't a magnet attracting an opposite charge. It's not like the strong force that holds atomic nuclei together. So what's the attraction there? So super dense uh, potatoes are out of the question. No, those can be a big problem. (laughs) That's why when you make a baked potato, fun fact, you should cut it open right after you pull it out of the oven. Don't leave it to sit there forever or it turns into a rock. (laughs) No, counterintuitively, strangely, what's happening when that lid gets pushed down is the atmosphere pressing on it. When the lid bends, what you're witnessing is the weight of the air we breathe. And it's a powerful weight. It really is. But we don't normally notice it. Like how come the atmosphere only pushes a depression into the lid after it's been microwaved? Why doesn't the atmosphere bend the lid when it's just sitting on the counter at room temperature? One thing you might be thinking is, okay, maybe it heats the lid up and this like sort of melts it or something and mm-hmm. makes it more pliable. But no, that that's not necessarily the case. It's because of the power of condensation. After you microwave a bowl of food containing water, a lot of the water in that food is turned into steam or water vapor. And of course, when liquid is turned into a gas, it not only becomes hot, but it expands. It takes up more space and it expands to fill evenly all the space it can. So the spots inside the sealed bowl are not occupied that are not occupied by food, they get filled with hot, high-pressure steam. And, of course, we know one thing that can happen here as as water turns to steam inside a sealed container is it can make the container explode in some cases. That's what happened, I think, with my egg. (laughs) Like the yolk was turning to steam and it had to expand and so the egg blew up. But if your container doesn't expand, it just fills with high-pressure steam. And then when the microwaving stops, the contents of the bowl cool down again. And what happens? Well, the steam that had filled all these voids in the bowl starts to lose energy. It cools down. It gradually converts back into liquid water. And this process, of course, is known as condensation. It's the same reason that dew forms on the outside of your cold soda can on a warm day. The cold can is converting water vapor in the air into liquid by cooling it. But if the bowl in the microwave has a tight-fitting lid or it's wrapped tightly in plastic, what happens when the water converts from a gas back into a liquid? 
Well, it takes up less space and it exerts less pressure on the inside of the bowl. Thus, uh, a covered bowl becomes a low-pressure environment or a partial vacuum. Without air pushing back at the same pressure on the lid from below, the atmosphere leans hard on the lid and, and it presses it down into the evacuated space, the vacuum punching it into that bowl shape. So what you're seeing when the when the lid bends down is the footprint of the atmosphere. And of course, the, the reason the lid doesn't normally warp and form a bowl when it's sitting on the counter or whatever is that the, the pressure is equalized on both sides. There's mm -hmm. atmosphere below it as well. The partial vacuum created by the condensation of steam changes that, evacuates the space in the bowl as the steam condenses into water, and then the atmosphere comes in. And this is such a this is a wonderful, mundane little way of seeing something strange and amazing, the power of atmospheric pressure. Yeah, you know, I, it, you know, normally when I observe this, my main thought is, oh, I hope I don't break the plastic top to my glass uh, a food storage container because I'm down to like one plastic top right. for all eight glass containers. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, but yeah, this is, this is an interesting way of looking at it to see it as the the, the footprint of the atmosphere, uh, the the weight of air actually observed. It's funny how it can be so powerful and we're so blind to it most of the time. I, I want to tell a related story about a uh, about a 17th century Prussian mayor. How about we go there? Let's do it. Okay, so this guy is named Otto von Guericke. He lived from 1602 to 1686. And uh, in addition to being a lawyer and a politician, he was, as I said, a mayor. Uh, he was an important engineer and physicist in history. And he had all kinds of scientific accomplishments. For example, in the 1660s, he invented invented what is believed to be the world's first known electrostatic generator, which is a device for generating electrical potential. Now, we talked a bit, uh, you remember, Robert, about the history of electrostatic generators uh, on the, I think it was the episode about the electric arc thesis, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah, but for a brief refresher, these early generators were generally based on friction, kind of like how you can build up an electric charge on yourself by scuffing around on a carpet. Von Guericke discovered that he could build up a charge on a ball of sulfur if he rotated it rapidly with a crank to rub against things. And he eventually discovered that building up a charge in this way could cause the sulfur ball to glow in the dark. But this wasn't von Guericke's only cool invention demonstrating like the potential of vast hidden powers in the world. He was also interested in the power of vacuums and voids and in the weight of the atmosphere, which as we were just saying usually goes unnoticed by us. So Von Guericke was the mayor of a city called Magdeburg, and around 1649 or 1650 or so, he, he invented the first known air pump, which could be used to remove gas from a closed container. And by using this pump to create a partial vacuum, he was able to conduct fascinating research on the nature of voids and empty space. For example, he discovered that light could pass through a vacuum but sound could not. Mm -hmm. And like, so given what was known at the, in the 1650s, how could that be? You know, what, what was causing that? Fascinating. But then also in a series of public experiments following this, he demonstrated the power of a vacuum or more precisely the power exerted on a vacuum by air pressure in a really awesome way with an experimental apparatus that came to be known as the Magdeburg Hemispheres. So von Guericke had this air pump of his and he created two precisely fitted copper hemispheres, two like hollow half spheres that together, if you fit them together, they would make a closed hollow sphere that was about 35 and a half centimeters in diameter. And these spheres were constructed with a valve so that they could, when they were pressed together to create an enclosure, von Guernica could attach his air pump to the valve to force the gas out of the hollow sphere and create a partial vacuum inside. And here's the, the mind-blowing part. Once the gas had been pumped out of the space between the two hemispheres, these copper domes could not be pulled apart, even when they were tied to horses pulling them in opposite directions. Oh, wow. And Yeah, yeah. And I want to be clear, like, there's no device holding the two uh, hemispheres together. They weren't glued or latched together or anything. You just press them together with a relatively airtight seal 
pump the air out of the middle, and they stay so stuck together that even horses pulling at each end couldn't separate them. So we ask again, what's holding these half spheres together? Just kind of like what's pulling the lid of the microwave container down? Uh, just as was the case with the bowl in the microwave, if you're imagining some force inside the spheres sucking them together, that's not accurate. There is no real sucking. In a way, sucking is an illusion, which, you know, that would be a good motivational poster almost. Um, <laughs> The real force here was the weight of the atmosphere, the pressure difference between the outside of the sphere and the inside. So you can sort of imagine the Earth's atmosphere reaching down with two huge invisible fingers and pressing the two hemispheres together while the horses tried to pull them apart. And to separate the spheres, you would have to overpower that push of the atmosphere. Uh, now, of course, an easy way to separate them is ju to just open the valve and allow the air to fill the sphere. Um, and then, of course, they'd come apart instantly because the pressure pushing out from the inside would be the same as the pressure pushing in from the outside. And the, I love these kind of experiments, the kind that suddenly demonstrate in sharp relief amazing forces that are always there. They're always present, but they're invisible to us from moment to moment. And atmospheric pressure is like this. It's our whole world. We spend our whole lives in it. We evolved in it. We're adapted to it. It permeates our bodies so we don't feel or notice it. It's just completely invisible to us. But if you merely create a vacuum inside two half spheres, the familiar becomes strange again and these fingers of the atmosphere come pressing down and the sky becomes so heavy it's kind of frightening. Well, let's break things down a little bit and talk about pressure itself. What is pressure? Well, pressure is actually fairly simple. It has two components. It has force and it has an area over which that force is applied. And this is why you often hear pressure explained in terms of like pounds per square inch, mm -hmm. right? So pressure is, not, uh, pressure is not just the amount of force pressing on something, but where that force is being applied. So one way of thinking about this is like, why do so many weapons have sharp points and blades, or not just weapons, I mean any kind of like piercing object? It's because they take the force of your swing or thrust or push, and they apply it to a smaller surface area, increasing the pressure on that surface area, and usually doing more damage or getting through what you're trying to separate. Now, when we start then applying this to Earth's atmosphere, uh, it really gets fascinating. Uh, and this is, this is a topic I, I really enjoyed researching several years back uh, when I wrote a piece called How Weather Works for How Stuff Works, probably uh -huh. one of my, my favorite articles that I ever worked on. Really? Um, and one of my sources on that was a book called The Atmosphere, Planetary Heat Engine uh, from, 20, uh, from 2007 by uh, Gregory L. Vaught. And uh, so, uh, number of uh, some of these figures uh, are his figures, I believe, from that book. But um, the Earth's atmosphere, if you were to weigh it, it would weigh in at a whopping five point five quadrillion tons. Uh, that's uh, fourteen zeros trailing after it. Wow. Uh, so you know that's a, that's a lot of mass, uh, and it's uh, actually and it's the driving force behind air pressure. Right. So one one analogy that I, I, I kind of like to turn to here is like if you imagine a squad of cheerleaders forming a, a human pyramid, mm -hmm. the cheerleaders on the bottom have to bear the weight of all the other cheerleaders on top of them, uh, while the cheerleader on the top doesn't have to bear uh, you know any of the weight. Uh, uh, a similar situation exists in the atmosphere. The air is least pressurized at the edge of space, where there's little or nothing pressing it down. Uh, the air at sea level, however, is weighed down by all the air on top of it, um, like those poor, poor cheerleaders uh, shoring up the pyramid. Uh -huh. All this pressure presses the molecules in the lower atmosphere closer together, and that means that the higher the air pressure, the greater the air density. And for this reason alone, 50% of Earth's air exists below an altitude of three miles or five kilometers. Right. And that's one reason it actually becomes kind of difficult to say exactly where the atmosphere stops, right? right. Uh, because the atmosphere doesn't – there's not like a dividing line where it stops. We've kind of imposed some arbitrary dividing mm -hmm. lines where we say, well, conventionally the atmosphere stops here. But it just keeps getting thinner and thinner until you go up, until you basically realize, well, I guess I would call this – empty space. Yeah, that's right. There's not like a membrane or anything up there. Right. So standing at sea level, the atmosphere exerts on average a pressure of 14.7 pounds or 6.7 kilograms against every square inch of your skin. Now, I've also seen this uh, figure slightly differently before. Uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, they say 14.5 pounds per square inch. And uh, 
per square inch. That's PSI. So mm-hmm. when you hear us say PSI later, that's what we're referring to. Uh, I, I find this interesting to think about. Okay, 15 pounds per square inch, again, that we just totally take for granted. And I know uh, each of us recently acquired a 15-pound uh, gravity uh, blanket. <laughs> that's true. This is not a paid plug. Not a paid plug, but just to, to, to illustrate, it's a blanket that weighs 15 uh-huh. pounds. And you pull it over your body, and it presses down on you in this kind of like uh, uh, comforting, inhuman hug. Uh-huh. And uh, I, so at, when I was researching this and uh, I was uh, adding that into my notes about the 15 pounds, I was like, oh, my goodness, I got I to gotta bust the, the gravity blanket out and, and feel what 15 pounds feels like or rather what 15 additional pounds feels like. Yeah, but there's one of those for every square inch of your body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's cra- crazy to think about that. Now, we've already sort of explored this, but you you might begin to wonder about, okay, so there, there's a lot of square inches on my body uh, and 15 pounds alone, that can start to feel pretty heavy when distributed just over the entire thing in a gravity blanket. How come I don't feel just constantly weighed down by the atmosphere? Why isn't it a crushing force that prevents me from doing anything? Well, there, I guess there are kind of like two answers to that. I mean, one is this is the, the norm. This is what you are used to. Mm-hmm. And then there's also... Uh, um, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it written, you know, that basically your the fluids in your body are pressing out with the same force. Yeah, yeah. So everything is, you know, there's equilibrium there. Right. We are at equilibrium in this pressure. It's what our bodies are evolved to exist in. If you brought in, a, you know, a, an alien from outer space mm-hmm. that uh, was living, I don't know, was living in a super low pressure environment, and that's how its body had been formed, and then you brought it to the surface of Earth, it might well be crushed like a, like a tin can. Right. And then there might be issues with uh, with the density, because uh, w- one of the uh, the issues too is that if you venture above sea level, air pressure uh, and its corresponding density will decrease. And that's why it's more difficult to breathe at higher altitudes. Yeah, uh, that's why it would be. You know, you've, you've all probably heard stats like if you were to teleport to the top of Mount Everest. Uh, the difficulty you would uh, you would have in getting enough air into your body to stay alive. Oh yeah, and this is this is something that's really interesting. I want to linger on this for a moment because we've established that we've got this really powerful, uh, fascinating force of atmospheric pressure always affecting us, but we don't normally notice it because we're we're acclimatized to it. We're in equilibrium with it, um, and we only no- normally notice its effects by its absence when we're at low pressure. That's when mm-hmm. th- when you start to notice what air pressure is. And of course, as you're saying, when you climb a mountain and reach a higher, uh, high enough altitude, atmospheric pressure is lower. There's less atmosphere pressing down from above. So the air is less dense, meaning every time you take a breath, you literally get fewer oxygen molecules. There's just, this, it's less dense. You're getting less with each pull. Yeah, this is also the very reason that in your airplane safety videos, they stress that if the cabin loses pressure, yeah. those little masks are going to fall down and you need to put them on in order to keep breathing. Right. Or you'll very quickly encounter uh, hypoxia, you know, like lack of oxygen in the breaths you take. And that, of course, can lead to all kinds of bad stuff in the body. You need oxygen continuously, immediately. And of course, so what this means when you get up to a high altitude is it can lead to heavy breathing in order to compensate for the lack of oxygen in each breath uh, and all kinds of stuff, weakness, dizziness, potentially dehydration or even loss of consciousness. I've experienced high altitude environments. Mm -hmm. I assume you have at some point as well. And it's it's a kind of... Uh, alarming feeling, you know, like you suddenly go up like 10 feet worth of stairs and like normally that wouldn't be a problem, but you're start, you're feeling lightheaded. And I remember encountering this on a trip to Arizona where we be, we began in Phoenix and then we were heading up, um, you know, rising in altitude uh, as we were uh, heading eventually towards the canyon, mm-hmm. uh, the Grand Canyon. Uh, and I think we were somewhere near Flagstaff where we, we stopped, got out and had this beautiful walk. The leaves were were golden, but I also think we were like it was like we we uh, the altitude changed as such that we felt maybe like a little more exhausted by the walk, and everything seemed like a little more magical in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I definitely experienced this some um, when I was up uh, up in Canada when like we went on the hike to the Burgess Shale National Park area mm-hmm. and uh, uh, to see the trilobite beds up there, which if you haven't done, I highly recommend. But research the hike before you do it. Uh, but also I've experienced this like in uh, New Mexico in the mountains around Albuquerque and Santa Fe, which mm-hmm. can get really high elevation and you you really start to feel it. 
Of course, altitude sickness can vary a lot in where it sets in. It's usually said that it begins somewhere around 1,500 to 3,000 meters above sea level, but it, it varies a lot from person to person. And I, I kind of wonder about something. I, this got me thinking about the prevalence of beliefs about the sacred or religious significance of mountaintops. Oh. Like uh, – so there are tons and tons of examples of sacred mountaintops or beliefs about the religious significance of mountain peaks around the world. There's, of course, you know, a familiar one to us, Mount, Mount Olympus, the home to the gods in Greek mythology. But there are just literally hundreds of sacred and holy mountains around the world that are either homes of the gods or peaks of sacred pilgrimage or places where people go to meditate, you know, near mountain peaks, mountaintop monasteries considered sacred in some forms of Buddhism and all that. Um, I was thinking about uh, Mount uh, Kailash or Kailasa in Tibet. Ah, so you're saying uh, mountaintops where the air is thin and the gods are near. Yeah, I wonder. Now, I'm not sure, but there could be a lot of reasons for belief in the mountaintops being homes of the gods or sacred places in general. And I think there's one clear piece of evidence that not all beliefs about sacred mountaintops have to do with altitude because many of the holy mountains of the world aren't even that tall. I was thinking about there's one in Japan called I think Mount Miwa that's like not even 500 meters. So there's clearly not like an altitude sickness thing going on there. So there's obviously there are obviously other things contributing to these types of beliefs. But I wonder if one factor uh, contributing to the widespread prevalence of belief in holy mountains is altitude sickness. As you climb toward the top of a very tall mountain, you're very likely to experience experience, heavy breathing, weakness, dizziness, dehydration, loss of consciousness. And I can even imagine these like mundane types of physiological obstacles presenting to ancient mountain climbers a kind of invisible power, a magic, a repelling force that attempts to bar entry or repel you from the sacred domain of the gods. Interesting. I like, yeah, I like this hypothesis. And actually, it does go farther than that. Uh, like apart from the mere hypoxic conditions uh, caused by low air pressure at altitude, there are plenty of records of high altitudes, especially like above 6,000 meters according to a 1999 study by Brueger et al. that I was looking at. Uh, high altitudes causing fascinating psychological effects like somesthetic illusions, which are when you imagine there are distortions in the schema of your body mm -hmm. and uh, various forms of hallucinations such as hearing voices, you know, people hearing voices on every you might have read yeah, I've definitely before. read about this before. Yeah, yeah. or uh, there's a common one of sensing the presence of an unseen companion on the climb, sometimes known as third man syndrome. Yes. So I don't know about that, but that's an interesting hypothesis to work with. And I think maybe we should come back and do a whole episode in the future about the science of sacred mountains and mountaintop psychology and, and maybe explore a little bit further whether there's something to this idea. Huh. Uh, I'd uh – it makes me wonder too about the science fictional um, applications here where you could have, say, a society where um, that, uh, they basically have a, a low uh, air density chambers in which one uh, 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 visits to uh, to meditate uh -huh. and receive the gods. Oh, yeah. I wonder. Kind of a riff on a, a recent Peter Watts short story that I read called yes. a, a Word for Heathens. Oh, man. Yeah. You made me read that one. That was great. It's sort of uh, – well, I don't want to spoil what it's about. If you're into Peter Watts, you should check it out. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's in his uh, his uh, short story collection of his that came out in, uh, in recent years. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, uh, we're going to go underwater and we're going to talk about water pressure. All right, we're back. All right, so we've been talking about atmospheric pressure so far. I, I don't know if we ever really announced the topic today. We, we just generally wanted to talk about some thoughts about pressure, right. pressurized environments or unpressurized environments. And so we've been talking so far about the, the hidden effects of uh, atmospheric pressure, but we, we should talk about water pressure because that's where the real pressure comes in on Earth. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, when we go underwater, pressure increases. Uh, and because the ocean is also a massive layer on the Earth held in place by gravity, and it weighs a lot as well. Mm -hmm. uh, estimated weight of the ocean is, uh, is generally, generally, the, generally the standard estimation is 326 million trillion gallons. That's 326 with 18 zeros on it. That's a lot of zeros, right? That is. Uh, by, by the way, this is uh, something that, is, uh, that, that I find kind of fascinating. Water is practically incompressible but it can be compressed with great difficulty for industrial purposes. Yeah, I guess I mean, I've usually seen it expressed as water being incompressible whereas gas is compressible. Right. 
Yeah. Oh, here's another fun fact about just the size of the ocean. If you removed all the continents and just had our oceans, uh, you know, the, the global ocean itself covering a uniform plane of rock, mm-hmm. the entire planet would be covered uh, in a two mile deep ocean. Wow. So that's just how much there is. Um, Starts to make you a little nervous. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Basically, though, everything I said earlier about about the cheerleaders and atmosphere holds true for the for the ocean as well. Venture into the sunlit shallows, and you feel a gradual increase in the pressure around you. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is go underwater in a swimming pool or swim down uh, from the surface while snorkeling to feel the pressure on your eardrums. Mm-hmm. That's uh, hydrostatic pressure, the force per unit area exerted by a liquid on an object. Now, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for every 33 feet or 10.06 meters you descend into the ocean, the pressure increases by 14.5 PSI. And that was the same as the pressure of the atmosphere at sea level, Mm -hmm. which is why this is usually referred to as the unit of measure one atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah, you go down uh, down 33 feet, you've got uh, one atmosphere of pressure. You go down 66 feet, you have two atmospheres of pressure. Mm -hmm. Uh, so at a depth of 5,000 meters, uh, the pressure will be approximately 500 atmospheres, or again, 500 times greater than the pressure at sea level. Uh, the average ocean depth is about uh, 12,566 feet, or about uh, 3,800 meters. So that's roughly 380 atmospheres of pressure. And the greatest ocean depth is, what, 36,200 feet? Uh <laughs> Over 11,000 meters, so that's roughly um, 1,100 atmospheres of pressure. Uh, and I've seen, I've seen the pressure at the bottom of the uh, Mariana Trench listed as uh, 1070 ATM. Mm-hmm. Well, that lines up about right. But, I mean, th- the point here being you can't, I think it is sort of impossible for you to imagine the pressure at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. You, you don't have something that it feels like to compare that to. It, but it is crushing pressure, obviously. If an organism were to go into that that was not biologically adapted for it, it would be just instant death, just yeah. destroy you. Yeah. It, it's, it's difficult to, to really grasp even in – even in you know, like our better works of science fiction, I mean, we mentioned Peter Watts already. Peter Watts uh, has written uh, uh, several different books that take place in ocean depths. His novel Starfish, especially that I've discussed on the show before, uh, there's a frequent mention of the underwater habitats and the and the uh, the, the rifters on that having to cope with 300 atmospheres of, of pressure uh, in the area that they're. Um, hanging out, and uh, and there's also in a later Rifter books books book he describes the crazy cutting potential of a stream of water shooting through a crack in a hole, mm-hmm. uh, how it could potentially slice a character's arm right off. Wow, um, and, is and, that is that real? You think that that is accurate? I think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, based on what we were talking about earlier about potential industrial uh, uh, applications of uh, you know of high high pressure water streams. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, uh, Watts, you know, tends to get the science right. I tend to, I tend to trust him uh, on on the science in his books. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I think about the fact that there are actually water jet cutters, like yeah. there are in industrial water saws. There's also an interesting account from uh, William Beebe, oh. um, you know, the, uh, the the inventor and tester of the bathysphere that we've discussed in the show before. Yeah, if you haven't heard our bathysphere episodes, you should go back and listen to those. But the basic idea, right, he got in a, he got in a giant metal ball and just descended into the ocean. Right, and there's, a, there's one – he wrote about all of this. And uh, there's one particular passage that's frequently brought up as an example of extreme, uh, uh, you know, the, the, of, of, of extreme water pressure. Uh, and this one is actually included on the NOAA website. Um, uh, but uh, basically, this would have occurred, uh, what, I think 1932, uh, in which they sent the bathysphere down, this, again, this uh, this iron beach ball of a of a vessel. With one window. With uh, one, yeah. Uh, I think later they had three, right? Oh, really? Yeah. But uh, at any rate, uh, just like these quartz portals to, to look out of, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were going to test it out. Nobody aboard. Uh, they lowered it down to 3,000 feet. And then the following happens. Quote, 
It was apparent that something was very wrong. And as the bathysphere swung clear, so they just, they've just pulled it out of the ocean after mm-hmm. this descent, I saw a needle of water shooting across the face of the port window. Weighing much more than she should have, she came over the side and was lowered to the deck. Looking through one of the good windows, I could see that she was almost full of water. There were curious ripples on the top of the water, and I knew that the space above was filled with air, but such air as no human being could tolerate for a moment." unceasingly the thin stream of water and air drove obliquely across the outer face of the quartz. I began to unscrew the giant wing bolt in the center of the door, and after the first few turns, a strange high singing came forth. Then a fine mist, steam-like in consistency, shot out. A needle of steam, then another and another. This warned me that I should have sensed when I looked through the window that the contents of the bathysphere were under terrific pressure. I cleared the deck in front of the door of everyone, staff and crew. One motion picture camera was placed on the upper deck and a second one close by, but well to one side of the bathysphere. Carefully, little by little, two of us turned the brass handles, soaked with the spray, and I listened as the high musical tone of impatient, confined elements gradually descended the scale, a quarter tone or less at each slight turn. Realizing what might happen, we leaned back as far as possible from the line of fire. Suddenly, without the slightest warning, the bolt was torn from our hands and the mass of heavy metal shot across the deck like a shell from a gun. The trajectory was almost straight and the brass bolt hurtled into the steel winch 30 feet across the deck and sheared a half-inch notch gouged out by the harder metal. This was followed by a solid cylinder of water, which slackened uh, after a while to be to a cataract, pouring out of the hole of the door. Some air mingled with the water looking like hot steam, instead of compressed air shooting through the ice-cold water. If I had been in the way, I would have been decapitated. Wow. So if I'm understanding correctly, what he's saying happened here is they lowered it down without any people in it to this greater depth than they normally would have allowed Mm -hmm. it to go down to see what would happen. And it somehow sprung a leak, despite the fact that this is a super reinforced, uh, you know, like it's not like it had a lot of components to fail. It was just a metal ball with like extremely thick windows. But something happened in the quartz of the window and water got in and because of the pressure where it was, not only did it fill with high-pressure water, but the air inside it would have been super compressed by the water filling it up at such high pressure. Yeah. So it's basically like a bomb they had had pulled up into the boat. Yeah, because normally the idea is it contains surface-level air pressure Uh uh, within this high-pressure ocean deep. Uh, But but it kind of reversed things, right? So when they pull it back up, it's this steel ball containing all of this high-pressured air and water. Yeah. There's something very frightening about that, like terrifying to think, um, I don't know, about just like the the killing power of water and air under such high pressure that there aren't like explosives in this thing. There's not like a, you know, it's not a gun or a bomb that has chemicals in it made to, it's just the pressure. Yeah, well, and, and, but, but it's, yeah, when you have situations through human technology that create this vast deferential, like a difference in pre- water pressure or air pressure that should be separated by, di- by greater distances. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that's where we see some of like the more unfortunate accidents that have occurred with like a uh, like rapid uh, depressurization, yeah, uh, which we may touch on a little bit in a bit, but we're not going to get you know into a whole bunch of gory details uh, uh, on on that matter here. Well, except maybe a bit as it concerns fish. Yes, well, that's true. <laughs> but uh, but but just to, you know, as long as we're talking about atmosphere and the deep here, that it brings up an important fact that increased pressure changes how our body interacts with certain gases, uh, namely nitrogen. Yeah, increased pressure allows more oxygen and nitrogen nitrogen to dissolve into the blood into the bloodstream and at a, and at a mere 100 feet nitrogen levels can reach dangerous levels resulting in nitrogen narcosis if not managed yeah, and this actually goes beyond just like respirated nitrogen in air. There are mm-hmm. multiple types of molecules and chemicals inside the body that actually take on different properties at different pressures. It's kind of the same way that if you're experimenting in a laboratory, you can change the properties of a chemical or molecule by increasing or decreasing its temperature. You can also change the properties of a molecule, compound, or whatever by increasing or decreasing the pressure at which it rests. And uh, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more in just a minute. I was looking up, uh, you know, a little bit more about the, the effects of, of diving 
mm -hmm. uh, on the body. And according to the Divers Alert Network, increased levels of oxygen can cause uh, will cause a vasoconstriction, which increases your blood pressure and reduces your heart rate and heart output. Uh, so I imagine that just means like it's shrinking the blood vessels, right? It's mm -hmm. making them tighter. Uh, they also point out that increased levels of carbon dioxide, which may accumulate in the body when you exercise during a dive, uh, uh, due to reduced pulmonary ventilation caused by dense gases. Uh, this uh, can increase the flow of blood uh, to your brain, uh, which can speed up oxygen toxicity if you're breathing a hyperoxic gas mix, one with an elevated level of oxygen. Oh, okay. So would it be normal, I guess, that divers would have in their in their uh, breathing apparatus, what, what is it called, the tanks or whatever, uh, a, a mixture that has more oxygen than normal air does. Yeah, yes, I believe so. Now, I've never been scuba diving. I've I've only only done snorkeling. On my recent mm -hmm. trip uh, to Belize, I was around a number of scuba divers. And it is, uh, I, I did spend a fair amount of time like sort of thinking about the differences between the people that were there to dive and the people that were there to snorkel. Oh, yeah? And um you know, and a lot of it does come down to the fact that, like, snorkeling is pretty simple technology. <laughs> um, and, and, and I love it. You know, you just you, you get in the water and you're there. You don't have to worry about too much. It, you know, you just make sure you're not brushing up against coral and spit out the salt water when it comes down the snork, uh -huh. that sort of thing. But but when you get into to, to diving, I mean, there are all these careful uh, considerations that have to be uh, made. You know, you have to keep track of your time and your your breathing. I mean, it is a it, – it's – I mean, it's a whole enterprise. Uh, we could we could easily do an entire episode just on the science of scuba diving. Actually, in one of the books that I recommended in our summer reading episode last year, "The Soul of an Octopus" by ah. Cy Montgomery, there's a there's a whole section in there that's sort of like a, a memoir of uh, learning how to dive with with scuba gear and stuff because uh, just because of an interest in uh, in octopuses and cephalopods and wanting to get closer to them and see them in the ocean. And it's it's not as easy as you would think. It's like an arduous journey, especially when whatever you're diving for was going to ask you to dive in less than ideal conditions. Uh, fun fact, that trip to Belize, uh, uh. The, uh, the the place I stayed uh, had a small assortment of books and magazines like these places tend to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that book, uh, The Soul of an Octopus, was was one of them. Oh, maybe because yeah. they heard our recommendation. Well, or, or oh. just, you know, <laughs> but probably more that like people that are really into scuba and diving. Um and, uh, and snorkeling, I guess, may uh, occasionally bring books of that nature I'll with say, them. I'll say it again. If you want to cry about an octopus, read that book. <laughs> no joke. Now, we've talked mainly about about humans uh, here and, and now a little bit about octopuses. But, uh, but plenty of other creatures are adapted to regular jaunts to fairly impressive depths or even, of course, permanent residency in high-pressure waters. Right. So sperm whales, for instance, which we've, we've covered fairly recently on the show, um, you know, they can dive down to depths of 7,000 feet or so. Uh, and and uh, this is a really impressive anatomical process that we, we talk a little bit about in that episode. Uh, but like one of the things that their bodies uh, do is that they, their lungs collapse to cope with the, cope with the pressure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's actually even – so we're about to talk about organisms that live permanently in the deep seas. Mm -hmm. But the ones like sperm whales that go up and down, like they yeah. go all the way to the surface to breathe and then go down 7,000 feet. I mean, what? Yeah, that is like, crazy. That is something that's especially hard to imagine for, you know, without the kind of biological adaptations that they have to sustain it. it it's going to be hard to imagine, especially given stuff we're about to talk about in just a minute here. Yeah, diff difficult for landsmen like, uh, like us <laughs> to imagine yeah. for sure. Um, but then, of course, yeah, you've got all these deep sea organisms that are permanently adapted to pressure that is that boggles the mind is just so crushing at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, deep sea fish that are adapted to high pressures. Uh, you know, generally, namely, we're talking about like the, the mere fact that they don't have air pockets inside their body like we do. Right. They don't have lungs full of air, or more importantly, uh, swim bladders. Yes. Uh, uh, there, there's actually like a whole host of um, of things that come into in, into play with with deep uh, water adaptations. Uh, like it's, I, you know, it's easy to sort of like think casually about it and think, well, oh, you know, it's a thicker skin or a you know different organ. Uh, but you know, you get into like all of these uh, molecular examples and proteins. Um, uh, deep water organisms, for instance, um, uh, they, they depend on uh, uh, something that's known as uh, 
trimethylamine in oxide, uh, which seems to counter protein destabilizing effects of pressure. Yeah, uh, no, that's sometimes known as TMAO. And the problem here is that, as we were saying a minute ago, certain types of molecules that are present in animal bodies anyway actually become more toxic or more dangerous at greater pressure. And one of those, of course, is the compound urea, which is in your body. You know, it's important in the renal system. Mm-hmm. Your kidneys deal with it. Uh, but TMAO is a protein stabilizer that helps protect the body against the toxic effects of urea at high pressure. So if you got urea in your body like a lot of deep water sharks do mm-hmm. and they're trying not to make that a poison inside their bodies that hurts them, the TMAO stabilizes proteins and protects the body against it. But I've also read that this molecule only works to certain depths basically. So extremely deep organisms, uh, you know, many of which we, we really – don't understand all that well yet, uh, they have membranes that require extreme pressure, like they fall apart without that pressure in place. Yeah, totally. Uh, Though it seems – so it seems that when you are an organism that is adapted to the crushing depth of the bottom of the ocean, how you fare when you are brought into a lower pressure environment, that varies a lot from organism to organism. I I was reading an article by the marine biologist and evolutionary ecologist Craig McLean. Uh, where he talks about his experiences retrieving organisms for scientific research from the deep sea. You know, they'll put them sometimes in a canister and bring them up with a probe. And specifically, he's addressing the question of whether deep sea organisms explode when you bring them up from the Mm. lower pressure environment of the surface. And it seems like for most organisms, the answer is no, they don't explode. Though he does talk about his experiences. I think somehow we've mentioned this on the podcast before. His experience is trying to collect a specimen of a particular kind of red sea cucumber, which he says is always reduced to a, quote, thick red Kool-Aid <laughs> by the time it reaches the surface. So there, there may be some kind of explosion scenario going on with this organism in particular and maybe some others. But with most deep sea organisms, when you bring them up from the high-pressure environment of the deep sea to the surface, there's no pop. The more common immediate danger actually is temperature change. The deep sea is very, very cold, mm-hmm. around like 0 to 3 degrees Celsius usually or about 32 to 37 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And when an organism is adapted to that temperature, bringing it up to the warm surface can kill it fast. So, you know, it might be like boiling it. Though many deep sea organisms can survive if they're quickly moved to some kind of protective cold condition. Uh, But the question is how do they survive such an extreme change in pressure coming up from the bottom? And basically, McLean says that their adaptations to deep pressure, many of which are sort of biochemical adaptations having to do with like uh, things happening at cell level or enzymes in the body, those don't happen to be adaptations of a kind that – consequently makes them vulnerable to low pressure. It's just like, you know, I think he uses the metaphor that if he puts a hat on to protect himself from the sun, that hat doesn't like hurt him when there is no sun. (laughs) Um, However, these organisms that survive the pressure change from seafloor to surface have usually evolved to possess bodies without major gas pockets, and that's key. When we're talking about any fish or organism that has a gas pocket inside it, like a swim bladder, all bets are off then. Yeah, I was reading a 2011 paper from Ding, Wagner, and Popper titled, titled uh, The Inner Ear and Its Coupling to the Swim Bladder in the Deep Sea Fish, uh, Antimora uh, Rostrata. And they pointed out that uh, they had to pull the specimens up from the deep uh, uh, really slowly because uh, they, they wanted to try and preserve uh, the, sw- the swim bladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creature's tl- uh, swim bladder is adapted to deep water pressure. Uh, but they pulled it up slowly to avoid damaging it. Yeah, and there's all kinds of interesting stuff out there about uh, the swim bladder of fish and barotrauma, you know, pressure-related trauma. That's what barotrauma is. So the swim bladder in fish is this gas-filled chamber that allows a fish to essentially – well, it allows several things. It allows a fish to rest at a certain depth without sinking and without expending energy to swim to stay where it is. But it also can help in ascent or descent simply by inflating or deflating the bladder. So it can be a buoyancy stabilizer that helps the fish out. You don't always have to be pulling your muscles to go where you want to go if you have a swim bladder. 
But obviously, a change in pressure will have a, an effect on a gas-filled bladder inside an animal. It's like if you take a balloon to lower pressure, it expands, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens when a fish with a swim bladder, especially one adapted to very deep waters with high pressure, gets pulled up to the surface? Well, a common example can be seen in rockfish. Uh, often when rockfish are pulled up from the depth, the swim bladder inside its body cavity expands to become so large that it pushes the fish's stomach out through its mouth. Oh. And this looks almost mind-rendingly grotesque, especially since it's often accompanied by Ronnie Cox in Total Recall-style bulging eyes. Oh, yeah. I've got some images for us here. And literally, the stomach is just poking out of the fish's mouth. It looks like a huge tongue. It does. It, it looks like a big cartoonish tongue or at least the end of a sausage. And it's because the swim bladder has been so inflated by the low-pressure environment, it's just like pushing out against all the other organs and the stomach escapes that that pressure of the swim bladder through the mouth. So it, it's averted. This is like yeah. uh, the, the pocket on your jeans uh, pulled out, turned yes. inside out. Yes, there's something swelling up inside the fish because mm -hmm. of the low pressure. It's that gas chamber and it's like pushing the guts out through the mouth. It's so gross. Uh, and obviously, this can be traumatic and can kill the fish. But actually, I was reading fish can sometimes survive this low-pressure barotrauma and, uh, and even survive the gut aversion if quickly returned to their native, native depth. This can be difficult, though, because sometimes the gas distension here causes them to float and be unable to sink back down. Uh, but I've read that you can sometimes safely get them back down to depth just by, like, covering them with a weighted upside-down milk crate on a line, which is then lowered back down to, to depth until the fish uh, swims away on its own. Well, it sounds like a little extra work, but really, I mean, if you've if you've pulled the fish out of its natural habitat, uh, you know, it's 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 the decent thing to do to either, I guess, eat it or put it back where it came from. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes me think about uh, there's this whole concept of catch-and-release fishing. You mm -hmm. know, people do catch-and-release, which is one thing if you're catching a bass in a lake, you know, you, you're not necessarily going to kill the fish if you catch it and then you take the hook out and you throw it back in. But with the, you know, with a fish like this, if you pull it up and its guts get averted by the, by the pressure <laughs> yeah. change, its stomach is sticking out its mouth, its eyes are popping out, and then you just take it off the hook and throw it back in the water and then it just floats on the surface and dies. I mean, what's the, what's the purpose of release then? Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, uh, again, there's there's a lot more to the evolution of DC organisms. Uh, you know, it involves a number of evolutionary adaptations involving, involving tissues, membranes, proteins, etc. Like I said, uh, and to come back to explosive decompression for a second, uh, which is you know a, a, a matter uh, all on its own. Uh, you know, it, it, this generally occurs when you have a rapid change in pressure, generally going from something like 9 atm to 1 atm instantly. And these sorts of events occur due to malfunctions in closed systems. So we're talking about human technology here. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of misconceptions and myths about this sort of thing as well. But um, uh, the, the, the fatal 1983 uh, Biford Dolphin diving bell accident is a frequently cited example of, of this sort of malfunction and the, like, the, the, the fatal nature of it, like just really how, how destructive that can be to be a living organism exposed to such a drastic change. Yes, though it, it, it is, I would say, there are a lot of myths out there about explosion in low-pressure environments, right. like the uh, whole idea that you would explode if exposed to the void of empty space. That's not generally believed to be true. Right. Uh, you know, if you were exposed to the void of empty space, I mean, it would kill you, but not by making you explode. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, geologic pressure and pressure on other worlds. All right, we're back. So uh, we've, we've discussed geologic pressure rather recently on the show, talking about mm -hmm. tunnels and digging in the earth and what's the deepest we've tunneled and what's the, which, what is the, de the greatest depth that we've descended to. And uh, so just to reiterate, geologists calculate that for every mile you dig down, the temperature rises 15 degrees Fahrenheit and the pressure increases at a rate of uh, 7,300 pounds per square inch. Go down deep enough and the temperature and pressure is enough to form diamonds. Uh, now, the, the specifics of diamond formation, this is also something, you know, we could easily devote an entire uh, episode to, but I want to just read this quick bit from How Diamonds Work uh, by Kevin Bonser on How Stuff Works. Mm -hmm. I wrote a number of, of articles for that website back in the day and, and may still be, for all I know. Uh, but uh, here's the quote. 
Quote, diamonds form about 100 miles, 161 kilometers below the Earth's surface in the molten rock of the Earth's mantle, which provides the right amounts of pressure and heat to transform carbon into diamond. In order for a diamond to be created, carbon must be placed at least uh, 435,113 pounds per square inch or a PSI or 30 kilobars of pressure at a temperature of at least 752 degrees Fahrenheit or 400 degrees Celsius. So 435,000 pounds per square inch. Yeah. It's hard to imagine pressure like that. I mean, this is unfortunately one of those cases where I think we can say the numbers, but there's nothing you can compare it to, right? Yeah. Like there's no kind of – you can't uh, – oh, okay, this was what it would feel like. You know, right. you just don't have a, a sensation-based point of comparison for that kind of pressure. Yeah. And now if we're talking about the core of the earth, uh, that's, that's also crazy because we're talking about a solid iron ball, about uh, – uh, 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers in diameter. It's white hot, but the pressure is so high that the iron cannot melt. Yeah. Um, and the temperature is probably between 9,000 and 13,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 5,000 and 7,000 degrees Celsius. And as for the pressure, it's uh, I've, I've seen it listed. I think this is a National Ge Geographic um, .com article uh, about uh, the Earth's interior. Uh, the pressure here would be somewhere between 330 and 360 uh, gigapascals. Gigapascals. Yeah. <laughs> or um, that would also be uh, 3,300,000 or somewhere between 3,300,000 and 3,600,000 ATMs. But again, we're talking, we're talking numbers like this. It just gets uh, impossible to really put that in anything approaching a human frame of reference. Yeah, you can't really like picture or imagine it. You just have to say, well, I mean, I guess bod human bodies don't go there. <laughs> and if, if they did, they would just – you'd just be – I don't even know what the word is. I'm trying to – saying crushed would be one thing, but it would be more than being crushed because that's normally like – uh, you know, being compressed down into a small space, I would think more than just obliterated. Obliterated, yeah, annihilated. It would be, it, it reminds me a little bit of the, in the past we've talked about different hell theologies, about uh -huh. what, ha if, if there's a hell in your, uh, your, your, your religious worldview, what happens when you go there? And in some of them, it's, you know, it's like, oh, there's fire and somebody's sticking you with something. Uh -huh. But in others, it's total annihilation. Like you are being your soul, everything is just destroyed. And if you really were to go to the center of the earth after you died in a kind of like physical direct fashion, I think annihilation uh, theology would hold pretty sound. Maybe you could be. <laughs> yeah, what's the yeah, – that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you'd only – I guess your best hope to descend only far enough that you would just be crushed into a diamond. <laughs> right. Has anyone on. ever been crushed into a diamond in uh, like a comic book? I think uh, – I know, I I know think... Superman could make diamonds. I believe there is a service. I don't remember if this is real or not, oh, yeah. but I think there's a service that at least claims that they will uh, uh, turn your dead your dead body into a diamond. Uh, they like take, take your ashes. The, yeah, and, take the yeah. carbon content of your body and, and squeeze it down into a, a synthetic diamond. Ah, yes, yes. That does ring a bell. But it's not like Thanos, Thanos doing it with his his uh, his gauntlet or something. I don't know. I gotta admit, I don't know anything about Thanos. What does Thanos do? He's well, he's got the big the, the gauntlet with all. Is the, that Josh the Brolin? It's, yeah, it's Brolin. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen those movies, yeah. so I don't know about Thanos. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, he is from another world. So uh, let's talk about other worlds, uh, planetary examples of extreme pressure. Well, yeah, that's kind of interesting because I was thinking about how when you imagine crushing environments on other planets. I think most of us, if you just think about it uh, real fast, you probably think first of gravity, right? We imagine there's some planets out there uh, in our solar system so huge and massive that their gravity would make it impossible for us to walk around on their surface. Mm -hmm. We'd be crushed under the weight of our own bodies. Yeah, I always go back to Phantasm. Yeah. And I think of the how they right. were— Right, Phantasm, yeah, yes. How they were crunching down the corpses into these like Jawa-like dwarves, uh -huh. pre presumably to serve as uh, like slave labor on this massive world's somewhere. This is the rich imagination of Don Coscarelli, a, yeah. a, ja a Jawa universe. Yeah. 
but yeah, so within our solar system, at least, it's not really the gravity I think you'd have to worry about the most in terms of being crushed on other planets. So we can, so we can estimate some of the effects of high gravity planets simply by looking at the effects of acceleration on test pilots. Uh, the the effects of gravity and acceleration are physically actually the same, and this is why we measure the force of acceleration on the human body in terms of g's. One g is one Earth gravity at the surface. Yeah, if you think back to our episodes on artificial gravity and the ideas about how to generate artificial gravity in space, mm -hmm. uh, we get into this a fair amount. Yeah, you use acceleration, angular momentum. Uh, you, you use acceleration in space to simulate g forces. And of course, heightened g-forces, so gravity and acceleration alike, or, or negative g-forces, these can harm or kill humans. That's certainly true. Primarily, I think uh, the first thing that would kill you would be their effects on blood flow, like by pushing blood from one part of the body to the other, preventing circulation and, say, preventing oxygen from reaching the brain or preventing blood from getting out of the brain. But unless I'm mistaken, I, I think there are no planets you could stand on in our solar system with enough G-forces to kill you, at least not immediately. Though, I mean, there would be lots of other things to kill you, radiation and lack of uh, breathable oxygen and all that. But the G-forces the G alone I don't think would crush you anywhere in our solar system. Yeah, I was looking around about this a little bit and it, it, for instance, um, the, the estimated cloud top gravity of Jupiter – would be something like 2.528 uh, Gs. Mm -hmm. So they're not a drastic uh, increase. That's something test pilots can, they do when they survive. Yeah. Now, the surface of the sun, however, that would be a gravity. Uh, the, the figure I found for that was 27.94 Gs. Okay. So if we're going to go walk in on the sun, yeah, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. But there are places you can go on our solar system where atmospheric pressure would pretty much instantly annihilate you. I think Venus is a great example. Venus is really similar to Earth in mass and size. Its gravity is just a little over like 90% of Earth's. Uh, probably due to runaway greenhouse effect, though, the atmosphere of Venus is super dense, composed mostly of carbon dioxide, which traps heat, making Venus beyond boiling hot as well. Uh, now, remember on Earth, the atmosphere presses on us with about 14.5 pounds per square inch, the pressure on Venus is about 92 times that, or roughly equivalent to the pressure at more than 900 meters or 3,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. Absolutely crushing just to stand on the ground yeah. under the atmosphere in Venus. And I've, I've seen it described that just the air, it would be kind of like being in a liquid. I mean, it would provide resistance when you tried to move because of how dense the carbon dioxide atmosphere is. I mean, I think about the probes that we've actually landed on Venus in the past. You know, the Soviet yeah, Venera yeah. landers mm -hmm. and stuff. They were they had short lives. Yeah. So they got down to the surface and did manage to send back a few kind of grainy images, but they do not live long. Like once you're on the surface of Venus, it's hot enough to melt lead, as commonly said. Uh, it's like 92 times surface atmospheric pressure on Earth. It's it's not friendly. Uh, of course, the exact opposite is true of Mars, which has an atmosphere somewhere around 100 times thinner than Earth's atmosphere, which means it weighs very little and pressure is very low. You don't want to go on the surface of Mars without your pressurized spacesuit on. Otherwise, you might – I don't think your guts would get inverted. But you, <laughs> you, would, you would have serious pressure-based problems, low pressure-based problems in addition to not being able to breathe and all that. Strangely, while freezing and lacking oxygen, Saturn's moon Titan, I think compared to these other options, would have a relatively cozy atmospheric pressure of only about 60 percent greater than Earth's. Uh, according to NASA, it's roughly equivalent to swimming at about 15 meters underwater. I mean, that's not the most comfy, but that's, mm -hmm. you know, better than Venus, better than Mars. Yeah. yeah. An interesting difference with the atmosphere of Titan is that because the gravity of Titan is much weaker than Earth's, I think it's only like 14 percent of Earth's gravity, the atmosphere is held much more loosely and extends much higher into space. The sky literally goes higher on Titan. Now, Earth's atmosphere, as we've discussed earlier, it's hard to say exactly where it cuts off. It just gets thinner and thinner as it goes higher and higher, much like Titans would also. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is no clear dividing line, but 100 kilometers is often cited as the beginning of space. That's just sort of an arbitrary marker that we use. I'd love to see what the sky looks like from the surface of Titan during a sunrise, during a sunset. I kind of want to go there. Yeah, with, with an atmosphere that is, you know, very roughly uh, six times thicker than mm -hmm. our own. Uh, though I've also given different estimates, I've seen it also said to be like ten times thicker. Oh, than wow. It just six to ten times. I mean, it just goes up and up and up. 
It would seem like it never stopped. But one last question I was wondering about, going back to our thing about uh, about the possibilities of pressure having an effect on mountaintop religious beliefs. If different atmospheric environments and the differences in pressure do actually have anything to do with religious beliefs about mountains, could the differing pressure of other planets do the same? Hmm. Like would a low-pressure or high-pressure moon or planetary outpost become Olympus or Kailasa or some other kind of holy mountain in space? I think we should come back to to doing the Sacred Mountain episode. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm stuck on that now. Well, there's, yeah, there is a lot to discuss because, I mean, there's so many different, of course, uh, myths and uh, religious models uh, that, that are specifically interesting. I know in the past we looked into the possibility of doing an episode about monsters of the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, we did a little looking around uh, in, that, in that area. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to return to the mountains. We haven't given the mountains enough attention, really. We can climb every mountain on the moon. <laughs> there you go. And find the dish that ran away with the spoon. <laughs> All right, so there you have it, pressure. Uh, you know, just uh, hopefully just a, a nice exploration of uh, atmospheric pressure. Um, How uh, it pushes down on me, pushes down on you. Yeah, under pressure. Uh, just a nice overview of pressure to be found on Earth, in Earth, and on other planets. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on this episode. Um, uh, so certainly other, like, cool scientific uses of, of pressure, pressure differentials uh, out there that uh, would be fun to discuss. Uh, we, we love hearing from folks about all of that. And, uh, hey, if you want to learn more about our show, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. Um, also, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is uh, make sure that you rate and review us wherever ever you have the power to do so. And make sure you rate and review Invention as well. Subscribe to Invention. That's oh, our other yeah. show. Have you not started listening to Invention yet? That's our other podcast. If you like this one, we think you'll like that one too. So go check it out. Invention, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe. It's a lot of fun. Lately, we've been talking about the invention of photography. We recently did some stuff on the invention of toilets. Uh, we, we, we're really enjoying enjoying that show and we think you'll love it too so go check it out that's right and uh, and be sure be sure to recommend inventions for us to cover as well because we want to cover everything recommended in the form of graffiti and in the form of skywriting we encourage you if you have one of those old biplanes how come nobody does skywriting anymore i used to see that when i was a kid never see it now oh well, i mean i saw it in cartoons all the time for yeah. sure but hmm. if, if you're out there and you're a skywriter let us know tell us all about your profession give us free promotion all right. Uh, anyway, thanks so much to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to give us feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a future topic, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's a new email address, contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.